Happy Mother's Day. So for my mom, um, I, I've been trying to do this thing for my mom for a couple of years now, but it's so hard. So when my, my brother and I were little kids, we took this photo, or somebody took this photo of us. So I'm the little one on the right. It's going to be important in just a moment, but I'm the little one on the right. And I'm sure, I'm sure my mom is yelling at my brother saying, hold his hand. Fine. And so my brother's, you know, sitting there holding my hand, and I'm like, yeah. And my brother's like, I hate this. So I have been trying for years to find a way to recreate this picture for my mom. And because obviously they don't make stylish clothes like this anymore. So I had to have these, I had to have these pants made. So uh, Ashley Silken helped me find somebody to find some material, made the pants. And so my brother and I took this photo. Huh? Huh? Happy Mother's Day. I'll tell you, after the pants and the frames and getting the photos printed, this is the most expensive Mother's Day gift I've ever given my mom. Uh, but also, if you, want to, if you never met my mom and you want to see her, she's actually on the Talking Element episode this week. If you want to watch us do a little interview with her, you can check that out after service is over. It's kind of fun. If you get our podcast, we actually are now linking are uh, talking elements in the podcast, so you'll get like the Sunday morning sermon if you ever miss it, as well as the talking elements. So you get two different podcasts a week from us because we're just like that. We're amazing and how that goes. Now, as we're going to start a new series today, and as we do, our sermon notes for the summer are going to be half sheets. They look like this. And on one side, you got like a picture of of a prophet. We're going to do this thing called the minors. It's about the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And their minor simply means that the books are shorter. They're not like JV or something like that. But so on one side, you get this. On the back side, you get the stats. We tried to make them look like baseball cards. And so maybe when it's all done, you can save them and trade them. They're going to be worth so much money. One day. Anyway, so on, on this side, you get like the prophet on the back side, get some stats about who they are, the verses we're going to cover. And then what we're doing is we're only putting one question, just one question throughout the summer, because hopefully we want you guys to still gather, but see what everybody's doing during the week, pray for one another, but kind of just zeroing in on one thing that kind of takes us back to talk about what happens in the message. Just that one question right there. Hopefully that's easy. Not that we always need to make everything easy, but hopefully it's easy enough for you guys to do that. Uh, another thing as we start today, I'm going to warn you, the, this message, some people might think it's PG-13 just because of some of the words that are used. I'm not trying to be PG-13. I know there's sometimes I am and I don't even mean to be, but today I think there might be a couple things that might sound like that just because of words that are in the scriptures, just throwing it out there. Uh, if you are new to Element and you like a Bible and don't have one, there's a Bible on every single communion table in the room. Uh, if you want some of these sermon notes, they're also on the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smart device, you can download an app called Version, and then click on More and Then Events, and Version will come up by GPS in your smart device if you're in the local area. Uh, if you're not in the local area, type in the zip code 93455, then we'll come up and you'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. And it says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Let's pray. 
Uh, Father, I ask that you would teach us to be a people who actually understand your goodness. Because in terms of how the scriptures are written, we are those who live in those latter days, those days that your son has come and you have rescued us. So teach us to live and understand that goodness that you always called your people to and still call us to today. And that you, in turn, by how we live in your goodness, would glorify who you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so as I said, we're starting this new series today, and this is my warning to you that this is going to be the weirdest Mother's Day ever, except for one other one, and if you're here, you know what I'm talking about. If not, I'm not going to talk about it, but uh, we're starting this series, as I said, called The Miners, about the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, there are 12 of them. A couple years ago, I was talking to my friend Michelle G. She leads music sometimes. You've probably seen her. And Michelle G. goes, why on Mother's Day and Father's Day do you do special messages? And I had the deep theological answer of, I don't know. And so then I thought, well, you know what? We don't need to do that all the time. So we're just going to start this brand new series today by looking at this prophet called Hosea because a mom gave you permission. So I'm going to do that. If you're mad at not having a special Mother's Day message, blame her. You're welcome, Michelle, if you're watching. Uh, so this, uh, this is all going to dovetail, I think, into Mother's Day as best I can, but it's not really. A, but we're going to look at a prophet of God uh, who marries a prostitute and has some kids and how that pictures her own salvation. Happy Mother's Day. All right, so uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of background where we're at. Uh, Hosea and Amos essentially are two minor prophets in the Old Testament who will prophesy at the same time. Uh, Amos, you're going to look at June 27th, week 7 of this series, but they were composed in the second half of the 8th century B.C. in what is known as the Northern Kingdom of Israel. Israel had a time and a place where they split, and you had the northern ten tribes that formed one nation and the southern two tribes that formed another nation. At this time, 790 to 750 BC, this guy named Jeroboam II becomes king in the northern tribes of Israel. Northern tribes of Israel never had one godly king. So this guy comes up and he starts to build Israel, the northern tribes, into a trading empire. He controls all the trading routes to Damascus on both sides of the Jordan River. And so when Amos comes and Amos prophesies, he's going to focus on the economic disparities between the wealthy people who stop caring about the poor people. In contrast, Hosea's theme is going to be all about loyalty to God and how these foreign gods are coming in. They're starting to worship, Israel's starting to worship these foreign gods. The new wealth had brought in all of these different things. And so Hosea, like chapter 5, verse 13, will describe God longing for the day that his people would return to him. So open your Bibles to Hosea. If you can't find it, it's on page 487 in an element Bible. And if you still can't find it, just use your phone and use your version. You're going to be right there. Uh, we're going to look essentially today through different things in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Hosea. Hosea is actually 14 chapters long, but the last 11 chapters deal with God talking to Israel. The first 1 through 3 helps us to understand who God is and how he speaks to his people. And I believe all the Hebrew prophets all point towards the coming of Jesus. They're all preparing the way. And Hosea is going to tell us the account of what this looks like through his messed up marriage. And if you've never read Hosea before, you never heard about Hosea before, you're in for a ride because it's going to be a little bit crazy. You'll be like, this is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard in my life. 
But you got to be patient and hear me out till the end of this. James Boyce wrote a series of sermons to the book of Hosea. And when he got to Hosea chapter 3, he called it the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, you may not agree with that, but by the end of this, hopefully you understand why he says that. And I was reading and going through so many things. So you know me, I always go back to my, my standby who I love, Tim Keller. And he has a great three ways to break this out. But I was talking to Steve Pruitt about it. And he gave me a better way to kind of hone in a little bit on that. So my three points today, I'm going to call them, they're from... Um, uh, Tim Pruitt or Steve Keller. That's where my points are coming from. So anyway, uh, number one is this. Our relationship with God is like a human marriage. Hosea chapter one, verse two. Here comes your PG-13. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Happy Mother's Day. Now, the word whoredom right there is this word, it's called zanun, and it means like the vilest of adulteries. And you don't hear God say this to people every day in the Bible. It's a little out of place. Now, Hosea is a prophet, and he is going to show the people what God is like and what we are like. And so Hosea is going to represent God, and Gomer, the person he marries, is going to represent Israel and ultimately us as well. So Hosea marries her. As Gomer starts running off after other men, they have children. She doesn't raise her children. God will come again to Hosea in Hosea chapter 3 and say, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins. It says, Go love a woman as I love the children of Israel. And that is going to be the point of the book of Hosea. Just as you, Hosea, are married, so I am married to the people I have called to myself. And that's one of the main themes of the Hebrew Scriptures and one of the main themes of the Hebrew prophets in particular. It's that we cannot understand God with just one type of metaphor. Like some people say, well, God's a king. Yes, he is a king, but we can't just understand him as king. Well, God's a shepherd. Yes, God is a shepherd, but we cannot understand him just as shepherd. Well, God's a father. Yes, God is a father, but we cannot understand him just as father. And so God here also says, I am like a husband who has a bride and I've called my bride to myself. And that is the idea that God also wants a deep relationship with us. And don't get this wrong. This is not a sexual thing whatsoever, but God wants a relationship that is intensely personal and intimate, one that is binding and enduring. And Hosea shows that we can't understand God's love for us until we understand the metaphors of brides and grooms. Isaiah 54 says, Fear not, verse 5, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5 says, The Lord will take delight in you as a young man marries a maiden. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. It's that we can't understand this full relationship with God that we're supposed to have unless we understand marriage. That doesn't mean you have to be married to understand it. I think sometimes some single people understand marriage way better than some married people. But marriage is this relationship of priority and intimacy. It's meant to be life-changing. And if you're married, then your relationship with your spouse is supposed to be the most important relationship in your life, second only to Christ. And if you do give it that priority and not just lip service, I think your marriage will be strong. I meet with couples in my office from time to time, and uh, one time, it's nobody in this room, it's not you, I'm not talking about you, let's just throw that out there, Uh, their marriage is falling apart, and as they sit in my office, they say, we will do whatever it takes, and so I saw a couple things, and I'm like, well, you could do this and this, and this probably help you right now, and they made all these excuses for why they didn't want or couldn't do this and this and this, and I said, oh, so you don't want to do whatever it takes. 
A lot of times we have lip service. There's a difference between lip service and actually doing it. If your marriage is strong, some of you know this, your house could burn down, you could lose your job, COVID could wipe out everything, you could be living in a cardboard box on the side of the road, but it's okay because it's the two of you and you're doing life together. I want to tell you, if my wife and I end up in a cardboard box on the side of the road, it's most definitely my fault, not hers. (laughs) But you're okay. Because you're together. That's a marriage that's strong. You move out in the world in strength. On the other hand, if your marriage is weak, everything in your life could seem to be going well, but you know there's just something wrong. It's, it's deep within your heart, in, in your soul, and you start to give in to all these temptations. You encounter the world in weakness. And God says, I'm your husband in regard that I am meant to be the most important relationship in your life. I'm the ultimate priority. God is not like a vitamin supplement. God is not like the, the Buddha belly you rub when you walk into a Chinese restaurant, if you do that, and you go, money, money, money. God is not like your good luck charm. That is not who he's meant to be. God says, I want a relationship with you that is deep and intimate and personal where everything else comes second. And only in that regard will we begin to step out into our lives in this intimacy that knows him as we are meant to know him. Marriage is meant to be the most intimate human relationship in a couple of ways. First off, knowledge. No one knows you as well or as closely as this person. Not your parents, not your kids, not your boss, not your friends, not your coworkers. When that relationship is good, that person knows you better than anybody else. My wife and I sometimes will be doing things and someone will say, hey, Aaron, why'd you do that? And I'll be like, uh, my wife will be, you did that because of this. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, I did, because she knows me better than I know me most of the time. And on the other side, there's a depth of passion and expression. Someone knows you so fully only because you are so close to them. You can't be far away and know them. And this is why God calls us close to intimacy with him. We can't hold anything back. God says we can't just know about him. We must be a people who experience his love. And yes, relationship with God is meant to be experiential. I know at Element, I like to talk about theology and give you a bunch of concepts, but it's meant to also be experiential. When we live in that experience, God love, his love changes us. It changes how we see the world. It changes how we see ourselves because of that intimacy. It can reprogram our entire lives. We, it, it'll change our self-worth about everything we do because it's more than just a heart issue. It's an entire life issue. Go back, going back to a marriage, if someone comes up to me and they say, hey, Aaron, you seem like a really nice guy. I was on vacation with some friends a couple years ago, uh, Julie Denton, if you know her. She, I, I talk to people everywhere. My, my wife hates it because she's an introvert, and I'm always like, hey, I, I'll be in a line somewhere. don't know anybody. I'm like, I just, I'm like Chatty Cathy. I just start going, and drives my wife nuts. But Julie Denton goes, man, you are a really nice guy to so many people. And I can think, got you fooled. I can think that. But if my wife says to me, Aaron, you can be really kind, I believe that because I can't fool her because she knows me so intimately. Now, my wife says, you're totally mean. I'm like, okay, yes, I am totally mean because you know me better than anybody. I don't know if you know what I'm saying, but a spouse has an unbelievability to affirm you when they use that power correctly. A spouse can tell you you're beautiful or handsome, and everybody else could say you're ugly, but you still feel beautiful or handsome because you believe what they said. On the other side, they could also tell you're ugly and everybody else can say something else, but you don't care because of what they said. If I do a message to you guys and someone comes up to me afterwards and they say, oh, hey, that message was great, but my wife didn't think it was great, I didn't think it was great. On the other side, if you all hated it and she thought it was great, I'm like, yeah, it was fine. What do I care? (laughs) 
And if that's the case of what a human relationship is supposed to be like, we've got to think of that in terms of who God is. And if what God says is true about his relationship with us, then that should change us. The Lord will take delight in you as a young man marries a maiden, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. God is invoking this moment of like a, a marriage and the groom stands at the, at the front of the aisle when the bride comes around the corner for the first time. You know what a groom feels in that moment? I'll tell you, because I've seen it lots and lots of times. His heart is pounding through his chest. He wants to sweep her up in his arms. He's like, oh, guys, I swear, in, in weddings, they just lose their mind. I don't know what the deal is, but it's like they're standing there like, yeah, I'm cool. Everything's fine. She walks around the corner and they just go, uh, and they just start walking to, I'm like, I got to hold on to guys sometimes. Hold on there, cowboy. Wait, you don't need, she's coming. It's going to be okay because they just want to promise her the world. They're like, I will die for you. It's really amazing. And God says, God says, if you got a picture of that, that's what I'm like. That's what I'm like. Tim Keller says this. The most incredible moments and the most incredible marriages in the history of the world are just dim hints at God's love for us. It's astounding, astounding. God says, you have to understand me more than just as king or shepherd or father, but also as this idea of a husband. And that's the positive. And I wanted to start there because happy Mother's Day. Now we're going to go dark. Okay. So my second thing in this is our relationship with God is also like a bad human marriage. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man is, is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins, who is an adulteress. You know what that's speaking about? The children of Israel and us. Now, some commentators will see, will look at this and they'll say, oh, God's telling Hosea to go get a different woman altogether. But he's not because they have this word again here, and that's referring back to chapter 1. God's saying, that woman, that's the one for you. Meet a lot of young people, and they all say, man, I wish God would point out the person for me. No, you don't. <laughs> if you read the book of Hosea, you may not want that to happen. Now, you're not Hosea, so don't worry about that so much. Just like when in the book of Job, you're not Job. Uh, God is not going to burn a shrub in front of your house like Moses because you're not Moses and tell you what to do. But Hosea is a prophet. He gets these messages from God to give to the people. And this is one of the ways that God is trying to help him see who he is. He says, that's the woman for you, and she is going to break your heart. Why? For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That word again is the vilest of adulteries. God then says, but yet I will show my love to my people. I will save them. And you're probably asking what a lot of people ask, and that is why would God say to Hosea, go marry this woman who's going to break your heart? I think there's two reasons. The first one is so God could redeem Gomer's life through Hosea. And the second reason is that God is saying, Hosea, you're a prophet and I'm going to use you to explain to my people my love for them. And the best way to you to understand that is to understand what I go through with my people. And that's how Zay is going to understand God and his love. I think today we're a people who don't fully understand what sin actually is. And because we don't understand what sin means, we don't fully understand God's grace. We always think we're just a little bit better than everybody else. We think that they're just not as good as we are and how we do our life, which in the end means we don't fully understand God and his love. And so God is going to take Hosea through what he himself goes through with his people. In chapter 1, we're told he marries Gomer. They have three kids. Who knows if any of those kids are actually his? He will have two sons and a daughter. It's another sermon on its own. But he names the third child Lo-Ami, which means not mine. 
because the child most likely was not his. As soon as he marries her, she runs off to another lover. They have these three kids. She doesn't raise those kids. And then after that, she runs to other lovers and then other lovers. And it just gets worse and worse. And, and the, towards the end of chapter two, it's almost like she, she's a crack addict running after the next sexual experience after another. How much worse can it get? Well, chapter three, it starts and she's actually for sale. She's on the auction block. Well, how does that happen? We're not actually told, but there's only a couple ways. Uh, first off, you know, she could still be with that other lover, and they didn't have enough money for more drugs, so he sells her to get more money for his molly. Or it could be that she has been used and abused so much that no one wants her anymore. She's not of use to anybody, and this is essentially like a pimp cutting his losses by putting her for sale. It's as far down as someone in that culture could go. That's Hosea's bad marriage. And God says... That's an image of what my relationship is like with human beings. Ouch. Ouch. Love a woman who is loved by another man and isn't adulterous, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins. Now, I get this. I don't like cakes or raisins, but I'm always like, what's happening here? Well, cakes and raisins are delicacies that they would serve in worship of false gods. And God is saying he loves his people, but they put everything else as more important than him. They run after the cakes and raisins. We worship anything besides him. And this is why to understand the metaphor of marriage, we, and if we don't get it, we're not going to understand the full impact of our sins upon God. If a king sees a citizen breaking a rule, he gets angry. If a shepherd has a sheep that goes running away, the shepherd's like, dang, nab it, the sheep. If a father, if you have a child who is constantly disobeying you and disrespecting you, you get angry. But, but when the person you love the most in the world starts to put themselves into the arms of another lover, that is totally different. And it hurts. God says, until you understand that, you will not understand the impact that your rebellion and sin has upon me because God loves us that much. You read about Gomer in chapter 2. You see she's out of control. She's essentially a, a sex addict. She's going from relationship to relationship. She can't stop herself. She must be thinking, this next thing, that's going to fulfill me. This cakes and raisins, that's going to fulfill me in my life. A lot of people today do this with internet pornography. They just hop into that hole, and they keep going deeper and deeper, and it never satisfies. God says, you're like a bride who has gone away from me. In the book of Jeremiah, not a minor prophet, so we're not going to cover him, but Jeremiah 2.2, God says, I remember the devotion of your youth. How is a bride you love me? And this is the idea that we first come to Jesus and we're like, I love you. You are amazing. And then pretty quickly, we start getting our focus onto the cakes and raisins. And we start running away from who he is. Verse 20 says, but you said, I will not serve you. Uh, verse 32, does a maiden forget her jewelry and a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. I'm going to jump around a bit here. By the roadside you sat, waiting for lovers. You ran after other gods until your feet were bare and your throat was dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods. I can't help it. I must go after them. But can the gods you made for yourselves save you when you are in trouble? You adorn yourselves in vain for your lovers despise you and they seek your life. That's what God says to his people. You're running after all these things, and they're only going to kill you in the end. And as simple as I can put it, to follow other gods is when something is more important to us in our lives than God himself. Our cakes and our raisins, whether it's money, accolades, children, sports, children's sports, <laughs> uh, Twitter followers, achievements. If there's anything more important than God in our life, that's our real God. 
And for Gomer, it looks like it was sexual addiction. Sexual addiction has this inner emptiness where you're just running from relationship to relationship, thinking something is going to fulfill, and it never satisfies. And God says, if you make anything more important than me in your life, you're doing the same thing that a sex addict does with their body. You put yourselves into the arms of another lover, even though that lover many times just despises you. And what God is saying is that those things cannot and will not save you. Idols didn't create you. God did. Idols can't save you. Only God can save you. A lot of people chase money or relationships today, and those things have a tendency to fall apart. And when that falls apart, where are you left? Well, you ran after a cake and a raisin, and it fell apart. Keller has this great line, and I don't think it was necessarily in regard to Hosea, but I wrote it down somewhere, and I thought it would be great in the message. And, And he says this, that everything that isn't God can only curse you with the sense of its absence. It's that we, we build our life around something, being an individual or, or something we attain. And we think that this is going to fulfill us, and we keep running after it, and it never fulfills. We always just fall short like there's something missing. And then that thing is gone. It never fulfilled, but it can only curse you with the sense of its absence. And until we understand the devastation of what you love betraying you, we're not going to understand really to the extent that our waywardness and sin, what it actually does to God and why it hurts God and why it makes him so angry. Okay, and we're going to pull back out of this a little bit, okay? So my third point is this. Our relationship with God is also like a healed human marriage as well. And you're going to see this of what it uh, costs God to actually heal his marriage. So Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, if you're there, the Lord said to me, go again. Now, Hosea has a thousand reasons not to go again, but to go divorce her. But he does go anyway because God tells him to. And let me quickly deal with this issue because some people look at the book of Hosea and they say, the book of Hosea says you can never get a divorce. That is not what the book of Hosea is about. And if you only look at that and that's the only thing you see, you miss the entire point of the book of Hosea. I think Hosea might be mad at you because he goes through all this stuff and you totally miss this, the point of it. It's about God and his salvation and what he does to rescue his people. So don't belittle it. Uh, what Hosea is saying is that God's love conquers all. And so God says, let's show the world what I'm like. Go to her. And so Hosea does, chapter uh, 3, verse 2. So I bought her. And I know those words are very offensive in our culture today. I bought her. This is 8th century B.C. Women were considered property at this point. And so she's up on the auction block. And these words, I bought her, this is Hosea buying her back from slavery to set her free. This is the language of our salvation. And when Hosea buys her, there's a very good chance that it's a public auction. That means she would probably be in strip virtually naked so the bidders could see what they're getting. And the bidding starts, and I'd imagine she has her eyes closed. It's the only way that she has to cover her shame. It's the only way that she can uh, hide herself from her greatest degradation in her life. And then she hears these voices. Okay, one shekel. No, half a shekel. Two shekels. Five shekels. And then, in the midst of this, she hears her husband. And she's probably thinking, well, what's he doing here? And then he starts to bid in the midst of this. Twelve shekels. 13 shekels. Chapter 3, verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. A lethic of barley is equivalent to about 30 shekels. It's interesting, later when Jesus is betrayed, he's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. But anyway, uh, this is the average price of a slave, about 30 shekels, which essentially means he paid about 45, so he overpaid for her. And I imagine Hosea comes up to her after he wins this auction and covers her with his cloak. Now, Gomer might be thinking, okay, he just bought me. This is for revenge. 
He's going to take me back to his house and he's going to beat me or, or do whatever because now he, he owns me. But verse 3, he speaks to her tenderly and says, Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same towards you. Now, commentators say that verse is very difficult to translate because there's so much in there. But essentially what's happening is he says, I want to dwell with you as my wife. I want to build a home again, and we're going to have to do this together. He then says, for a set period of time, many days, you will have sex with no man, including me. The grandma actually says, no man, including me. And then he says, but I will indeed be yours. It's the idea of, I want to rebuild our lives together. Derek Kidner, when he writes about this, he says, there were years of disloyal habits that needed to be broken in the light of the realities of personal relationship, and they would explore them together. It's that Hosea doesn't have this naive, sentimental, oh, God's just going to make everything okay. That's not what that is. Hosea paid a price. A couple weeks ago, we were talking about this communal culture of honor and shame. And in this communal culture of honor and shame, he will continue to pay that price the rest of his life. People will be thinking, why her? Why her? And we are not told by the text what happens next because after this, it's God speaking to Israel. But one commentator writes this, and I like this. The fact that this relationship between Hosea and Gomer has come down out of that period of time as one of the greatest parables of God's relationship with Israel probably means that finally Gomer found rest in her husband's love. And that is heartwarming and heartbreaking at the same time. See, what we need to understand is this whole period, uh, this picture of who Hosea is, is helping us to see who God is. That's why God has uh, Hosea go through this. Hosea is in love, God's in love. Hosea's been betrayed, God's been betrayed. Hosea pays an enormous price to get his bride back. So, where does God do this? Well, this is a book of Hebrew scripture. And so, it's like an open ended question. Well, where does God do this? Where does God step into the marketplace? Where does God step in and pay this price to rescue and save us and bring his people back? Hosea chapter 3, verse 4 says, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. It's a prophecy. For many, many years, the Israelites will live far away. They'll be cold and distant. But then verse 5, Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Well, David their king is dead. And so when it talks about this, everyone would understand that this is a son of David, an heir of David, someone in David's lineage who is going to come. And when Jesus comes, what you, what you see is these people who cry out, have mercy on me. Anybody know what comes next? Son of David. Son of David. When, they're, when they ask Jesus in Matthew 9, they say, why don't your disciples fast like everybody else's disciples? Jesus says, do the friends of the bridegroom fast when they're with the bridegroom? Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. Everybody knew the great bridegroom of Israel was God himself. That's what Hosea shows us. And Jesus says, I'm that bridegroom, but soon I'll be taken away. And then the people will fast and mourn. Essentially, I have come to die. In Jesus, God enters the world, enters that marketplace to redeem us. We are a people who have run after our cakes and raisins and given ourselves to it all of the time, and we are chained to our sin. And what does God do? God comes. He purchases us back. He clothes, he covers our nakedness and shame with his righteousness. Because on the cross, Jesus died to pay our sin and buy us back from our enslavements. In God, Jesus laid down his life for us. This is why we call it a substitutionary sacrifice. Did Gomer have any way to buy herself out of the slavery? No, none at all. Our sin, 
our evil, our problems placed upon Jesus, and his righteousness is then placed upon us. We get to be drawn back into relationship with God again. And sometimes I almost hesitate to speak about things like this in the scripture because it almost tends to bring God down to our level. Because, but God is so high above us that I think it's so hard for us to ever comprehend who he is. But this is the, one of the ways that God has shown himself so we can comprehend him a little bit better is to understand what he has done to rescue and save us, who we are, how we have run, and how he pictures us and loves us and comes to save us. I mean, I don't know if you can get it. The, the depth of the love of God for his people, that how he longs to delight in us, I think to the degree that we understand our sin and our rebellion, not that we dwell in it and live there, but to the degree we understand that is to the degree we're going to understand God's love and his grace over us becomes the degree to the strength and the power we will have to live out these lives for him in this world. And that's why it's important to understand a book like this, because that's the book of Hosea. We have been redeemed just like Gomer. It's, it, Jesus didn't you know, go to the cross and be like, yeah, that looks painful. Okay, I will pay uh, 15 shekels and a lethic of barley. That's not what he does. He gets on that cross. It didn't cost him shekels. It cost him his life to bring us back to himself. And we are told he not only willingly, but joyfully gave up his life to rescue and save us. This is the beauty of the gospel, the good news that God stepped into where we are in our change because we run after our cakes and raisins and drew us back to himself because he is that good. This is one of the reasons every wicked element we talk about communion because it's a reminder of what Jesus did. So often we forget the depth of God's love and care for us as we keep running away. And yet he keeps chasing us down to bring us back to himself. And this is why you take a cracker like Christ's body was broken and you break that cracker and you... Take the wine or the grape juice to remind you of his blood that was shed. This is what God did to rescue us, to bring us back to himself. He is simply that good. And so we do that communion every single week as a reminder of God's rescue of us as a people. I was going to say the band, but Jason, (laughs) to come back up. Uh, Now, I know it's Mother's Day, and... Do you know that even in the scriptures where you know, God describes himself as, as a husband, father, king, he also will even use feminine imagery in a couple places. He will, he will talk about how he's like a, like a mother hen who longs to gather his chicks to himself. It's happy Mother's Day. But that's, that's the understanding, too, that, that God loves us and longs to draw us back to himself. But how does he do that? He does that through the sacrifice of Christ, paying our sin of what separated us from himself. As we again run after our cakes and raisins, God calls us to himself. He goes, and on this Mother's Day, if we could just get the picture of God's deep love for us, it would completely change us. And that's what I'm hoping you kind of start to see today. God's great and deep love for every single one of us. Um, if you need prayer, maybe you're in a place and, you, and you've never seen God like that. This, this God who longs to bring you to himself. This God who, who loves you and calls himself not just king and lord and shepherd and father, but husband over a people he's called to himself, and you want someone to pray with you, uh, talk to Sarah at the Welcome Center. We'll connect you with somebody to pray with you today, to introduce you to this great God who loves us more than we could ever imagine. Because really, this is, that's the whole point of what we do, is to speak of God's rescue, of God coming to save us, speaking of the gospel every single week. 
because our rescue is not based upon what we've done. We cannot buy ourselves out of the chains. Our rescue is found in what God himself does himself, which also takes us to giving. If you guys would like to give, there's offering boxes next to every single door, and we simply give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. And on the sermon notes, you know, we have, again, that one question. And I think it's a great question because we put, reflect on the different marriages you have seen. So that's going to be a lot of fun, right, to start off. How are the most incredible moments and the most incredible marriages in the history of the world only dim hints at God's love for us? Talk about that question. It'll, I think it'll help maybe deepen some ways of how you understand God. I think you've got some fun making fun of some people's marriages, maybe even your own. I don't know. You know but then come back to how God loves us and God calls us to himself and what we are like compared to what he is like. And we'd be those who start to live not just with the understanding of his great love over us, but the power that that actually brings into our lives to live consistently for him day by day because our salvation is found not in ourselves, but in our God who has rescued us. Let's pray. Father, today we ask as a people that you would take us and have us get this glimpse and understanding of how you have come after us and that we wouldn't make our understanding simply about ourselves and, oh, look at what God has done just for me, that we would see that what you have done for the entire world and that would humble us where we would begin to live out just like Hosea does, speaking of who you are and your great love for Gomer and for him, that we would be those who begin to live that out in front of everybody else as well because we understand your great love. Father, I think so often it's easy for us to forget because we get so consumed with our cakes and our raisins and we get so fixated on them that we start to forget the goodness of your rescue and your salvation. And so I ask today that just like you broke Gomer's chains and Israel's chains, that you would break our chains to those cakes and raisins, that we would begin to see you as you truly are. And that would change our lives to be ones that worship you in all that we are, in all that we do, and that we would have such great strength and power because our lives are found in you. Teach us to be those who speak of this wonderful gospel of grace, to be a people who walk by faith and trust in who you are, no matter what comes our way, because you are our great bridegroom, and you've called us to yourself. Teach us to live as your bride. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.